Good morning. Our scripture reading comes from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. You may follow along in your Bibles or on the screen behind me. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we may hear your word with joy. Amen. Well, good morning. Um, Before I start, I just thought I'd take a moment. uh, um, You might be glad to know, but James mentioned the offering that we took. It was something different on Christmas Eve. We usually don't do an offering, but we thought we would do one, and all the proceeds would go to support uh, one of our ministries, that we've partnered with, and this year it was PSC, uh, and uh, over $4,800 was raised. So we want to thank you for your generosity for that. Uh, Also, just want to give you an update. Some of you are wondering about uh, where the church ended up in the year, uh, and uh, we're so excited and thrilled. Uh, God has been faithful to your generosity, and uh, we ended up uh, over $30,000 in the black. So that was just exciting for us. So thank you, and we praise God for what he's doing. you know, every Sunday I, I begin my message, and one of the things I typically do, once in a while I forget, but I put on these glasses. I don't, I don't have to wear these glasses all the time. I'm nearsighted, which means that I can see things up close. I, I don't need them to read. I don't need them legally to drive. Although at night now, with my age, I'm like, eh, I want to wear them at night. But they, they help me to, but I, I do put them on when I preach because it allows me to really see clearly at the back. I can tell who's in the back. You know, I, I can, I can see, see Jackie there in the back. And, but if I really want to focus in and see, you know, see a little bit more, I have to squint. And if I do that the whole sermon, I just look angry or confused. Okay. And, and we don't want that. So I wear, I wear my glasses and, and they're really helpful. I started wearing them first when I was in my late twenties and, and, you know, I don't wear them around the office, uh, but I'll wear them when I preach or when I drive. Um, and glasses are so helpful because what do they do? They, they, they help focus, right? They help you see things you wouldn't see without them. Uh, they bring clarity. Um, and and with, without them, uh, you, know, I, I, you know, if I stared and stared, I might get a headache at long distance. So it really is helpful to have a pair of glasses to bring focus and, and clarity. You know, as human beings spiritually, we, we sometimes have a problem with seeing things clearly, don't we? We, we, we sometimes have, a, have blind spots. We, we have stigmatisms, so to speak, in our, in our lives, our heart or minds, or our souls, things that, that keep us from clearly seeing God's truth, God's purpose for us or for a certain situation. And so what God does is he, he provides corrective lenses for us so we can see clearly what he wants us to do and focus on. And those, those corrective lenses that he gives us are primarily through two things, through his scripture, through his word, right? And through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit and God's word intersecting together the word of God, his truth, his will, his purposes, the revelation of who he is, of, of Jesus Christ, so on and so forth, his commands, his blessings, his promises. But also the Holy Spirit that helps us to, to interpret and to read and to apply rightly God's truth and God's wisdom. So, so those are kind of God's corrective lenses for us. 
And you've probably noticed that uh, on the slide or if you came in that we're starting a sermon series. We kicked it off last week, kind of a big picture overview, a panorama of it. We're looking at we're calling it 2020 vision, which is, of course, a play on the year 2020. Uh, it's nothing new under the sun, Solomon said, and this is nothing new. 2020, I'm sure other churches have done this or doing this. But also just the whole idea of, of God using his word through the, his Holy Spirit to, to sharpen our focus. What are the things that are most important that we are to be about as individuals in our lives? What are the things that we are to be about that are most important as a church? What should be the things that we focus on and asking God to bring clarity to that? So that's what we're going to do over the next several weeks. But I want to begin this morning as Julie Andrews sang in The Sound of Music at the very beginning. It's a very good place to start. Remember she sang that? So the beginning. What is the beginning? In 1991, there was a great movie that came out. Wonderful kind of, kind of guy bonding movie, a, a comedy, City Slickers. Remember, remember City Slickers? Some of you saw City Slickers. And Billy Crystal uh, is the main character, and he's got a couple of buddies, and they're going through this midlife crisis. Um, they're having some problems with their marriage, with work, and whatever, just, just trying to find purpose in life. They're, they're feeling all the angst. And, and so what do they do? They could buy a sports car or whatever, something like that. But they decide instead to go on a, on a dude ranch cattle drive over several days. And the wrangler who's overseeing them was this crusty old cowboy, this character played by Jack Palance called Curly. And Curly is this kind of uh, intimidating guy, doesn't say a whole lot. Uh, and they're a little bit scared of him. And one day, Curly and Billy Crystal's character, they're riding their horses. They're kind of off by themselves, riding along. And Billy Crystal's is kind of sharing his frustration, his unhappiness, his questions, his angst, his search about life. And Curly tells him the secret. He says that one thing, remember? The one thing, find the one thing. Find the one thing that you're made for, that helps life make sense, that makes life work for you. The Bible tells us that we are made in God's image for one primary thing. Now, there are a lot of things that flow out of that one primary thing. A lot of things are to be about, but there's one primary thing that if we get that right, everything else will flow out of it. And the church reformers in the the 16th century coined a phrase that communicates this well. And the Westminster Confession is one of the most historic statements regarding the Christian faith. And it declares this. The chief end of man, the chief end of humankind, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Glorify God, enjoy him forever. The main thing, the chief end of life. Soli Deo Gloria, the Latin, to the glory of God alone. In other words, it's his world, we're just living in it. It's not solo meo gloria, to my glory, it's to God's glory. That's to be what defines our life as believers. The Apostle Paul wrote these words 2,000 years ago. Whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Whatever you do, eating, drinking, sleeping, rising, working, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. So what does it look like to eat or drink to the glory of God? Does it mean that between every bite or swallow, we shoot up a little prayer, say, praise God for this. To God be the glory for this lemonade or French fry. Or what, what does it mean to eat or drink to the glory of God? How do you prevent that from turning into a religious performance 
or cliche or, or, or habit. Today, we're going to talk about what it means that all glory belongs to God. And the first thing we want to draw out is that it is natural to proclaim God's glory. It's natural to proclaim God's glory. It's, it's not unnatural to proclaim God's glory. It's, it's unnatural not to proclaim God's glory. It's, un, it's not like you're asking an elephant to fly or an ant to uproot a tree. It is natural to proclaim God's glory. Now, now glory is a, is a strange word for many. We don't use glory a whole lot. We'll talk about success or, or somebody doing something impressive, but we don't use the word glory a whole lot. Uh, maybe the only time we use it a lot in our society might be old glory. We talk about the flag, star-spangled band, old glory. It's an old-fashioned, archaic word, it seems like to us. But it's a biblical word with a lot of, a lot of impact. I want to draw upon an essay by C.S. Lewis. He wrote about this topic called The Weight of Glory. I'm going to quote him a couple different times. First quote a couple sentences or a couple paragraphs, so stick with me. I turn next to the idea of glory. There is no getting away from the fact that this idea is very prominent in the New Testament and in early Christian writings. Salvation is constantly associated with palms and crowns, white robes, thrones, splendor like the sun and stars. All this makes no immediate appeal to me at all. In that respect, I fancy myself a typical modern man. Then he writes, glory suggests two ideas to me of which one seems wicked and the other ridiculous. Either glory means to me fame or it means luminosity. As for the first, fame, since to be famous means to be better known than other people, the desire for fame appears to be a competitive passion that comes from hell, not heaven. As for the second, luminosity, who wishes to become a kind of living electric light bulb? Glory. The scripture tells us that God's glory is proclaimed everywhere. Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God. Now, the psalmist is not necessarily saying here that creation proves the existence of God. We sometimes think of it that way. Certainly, we look at creation and the universe. We look at the complexity of the universe. We look at the complexity of the human body. We look at uh, all sorts of, uh, of the beauty of the world and, and just the sheer uh, statistical improbability that this could randomly just happen without any sort of design or, 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 or divine force. Certainly, you stack that up and, and it makes a good case for God's existence. But in the ancient world, when this psalmist would have written this, everybody assumed that there was a divine being. What the psalmist is saying is this creation and the heavens and the earth. They tell something, tell us something about God. The beauty and the wonder and the mystery and the majesty and the power and the liveliness of creation around us it reflects who God is. And so glory is the particular excellence of a thing that makes it praiseworthy. That's the next slide. Glory is a particular excellence of a thing that makes it praiseworthy. So, for example, the glory of a flower is its beauty. The glory of an elephant, a bull elephant, is its sheer strength. The glory of a cheetah is its blinding speed. The glory of Pastor Paul is his luxurious locks of hair, right? Just checking to see if you're paying attention. I mean, seriously, you've seen those head and shoulders commercials, you know, Troy Palomalu and, and Patrick Mahomes. Paul could be in one of those. But I digress. But I digress. 
Pastor West, on the other hand, could not. <laughs> he has a different kind of glory. So. But glory is the particular excellence of a thing that makes it praiseworthy. And creation is telling the glory and the majesty and the wonder and the splendor and the otherness of God. And when we recognize this and we revel in it and we celebrate it, we give God glory. We were made for this. We ought to do this. And it's a good thing to do. Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. The glory do his name. Now this brings up a really important question. People sometimes wonder, why does God need all this glory? Doesn't that seem kind of needy? His commands, give God glory, give me glory, give me the glory. What's that all about? Doesn't it seem kind of like he needs a lot of affirmation, that he has a weak ego? What what is that all about? We need to realize that we do not worship God because he has unmet needs. God is complete in himself, Father, Son, and Holy. He does not need us. He wants us, he desires us, but he does not need us to be complete. We worship God because it is the natural response when we detect his glory. I mean, if you see something beautiful, like this morning, the sunset, it was incredible. Just beautiful colors. Just the sky lighting up with different colors. Or, or when we lived in Canada, the, the northern lights, just incredible. When you see something like that, you naturally want to tell somebody. It's part of the joy. You want to express an appreciation for the beauty and the glory of something that you've seen and experienced. And if you see something glorious and it's a person, the concept is taken to another level. So single guys, listen up. If you're a single guy and you see a beautiful woman with a great personality and she's single, you, you should want to tell her that she's beautiful. That's relationship 101. Whether you should tell her and when and how is another matter, of course. But if you're on a date, if you're on a date and it seems appropriate and you tell her she's beautiful and intelligent and funny and if she receives your praise and is pleased with it, then you get to be blessed by her reception of that praise. You might be able to enter a relationship with her. And you might be able to sort of strange, deep way to share in her beauty, in, in, in her glory. Any guy who's married well understands what I'm talking about. God is a glorious God doing a glorious thing. And we get to be a part of it. That is why we exist. Which leads us to we were made to experience God's glory. Not just admire it from afar, but to experience his glory. The Hebrew word for, um, for uh, glory is kabod, K-O-B-O-D. It's a, it's a word that, that speaks of, of weight and of substance and of, of, of a burden even. And the idea is that God, the glory of God, gives weight and significance and meaning and purpose to life. All life, including yours and mine. In the Bible, the glory of God is particularly associated with the presence of God. God's glory is not just up there. It's not just unattainable. We can't, it's not that we can't relate to it. God's glory is associated with his presence. But as we look at Scripture, there's also a, there's a little bit of a danger when God's glory and God's presence intersect in our lives and in our world. For example, the people of Israel, they come out of slavery in Egypt. And they travel and they go to Mount Sinai. And at the top of the mountain, God's presence begins to be manifested. There's, there's clouds, there's, there's smoke, there's fire, there's thunder, there's, there's, there's loud noises. And, and then the people are, they're scared. They're scared. And what do they do? They ask Moses. They say, Moses, um, why don't you approach God? You are the go-between. We'll stay here 
because we're afraid if we get too close, we're going to die. So, so you do it. You go. You know, so you go, Moses. You get close to God. You go, you go find out what he wants, what he wants to tell us. You go be in his presence. We, we, can't, we can't. We're drawn to it. We're attracted to it. But we can't draw too close, lest we might die. They're filled with, with awe, but also fear. We are made to experience God's glory. And we love it and we crave it. But we have been cut off from his glory. And now we're starving for it. Which leads us to the next point. We are to be glory reflectors, not glory manufacturers. Paul wrote this in a letter to the church in Rome. For all have sinned and fall short of what? Fall short of the glory of God. They've been cut off from the glory of God. They can't experience the glory of God. Sin cuts us off. It makes us want to, and, 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 and we're cut off from the glory of God, and so we need that glory. We, we want to experience that glory, so what do we do? We try to accumulate glory for ourselves. In the story of the Tower of Babel in, in the Old Testament, the people get together and they say, we're going to use our intelligence and our technology and our know-how and our strength, and we're going to build an incredible tower that reaches to the heavens. And they say, come, we need to make a name for ourselves. That's the human condition. We are in the, in the name-making business. We want to accumulate glory for ourselves. Let's make a name for ourselves. But in the long run, it never works, and it usually makes us look silly. Like the story about a, a military officer just taking command of a military base. His first day on, on the base, and he goes into his office and he wants to look important and to have the glory due and the respect due a new officer. And so uh, he picks up the phone and pretends to have a conversation with an important person just as a private walks in. He wants to impress him. Yes, sir, General. I'll get right on it. You can count on me, sir. Yes, sir. He hangs up the phone. Uh, okay, private, what do you want? And the private looks confused. He says, well, sir, I'm here to hook up your phone. <laughs> Accumulating glory for yourself. It never works. We just look silly. And part of what it means to give glory to God is to die to this, this self-glorification project. We're hungry for glory, aren't we? Isn't that why we work harder and longer in our lives? Isn't that why we try to look better and sound smarter than we really are? Where you're hungry for glory. Our hunger for glory is God-given. Don't get me wrong, it's good. It's part of why we were made, but sin has perverted it and ruined and twisted that hunger. And so we seek glory for ourselves to satisfy that hunger. And we end up starving ourselves spiritually. That hunger will only be truly satisfied when we seek to glorify God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We cannot get true glory because glory is a byproduct of knowing God. We are designed to be glory reflectors, not glory manufacturers. Like this, the moon does not provide its own glow. What does it do? It reflects the light of the sun. Next, God's glory is his goodness. So back to Moses. One day Moses is talking with God. And what does Moses say? It's an astounding statement. He says, show me your glory. How often do you say that? God, show me your glory. 
we say things like, God, help me through this day, help my kids, help my marriage, help my finances, help my health, help me, you know, whatever it might be. We don't often say, show me your glory, God. How does God respond? What does he do? Does he bring thunder and lightning, a tremendous earthquake, huge galaxies, special effects, this cosmic PowerPoint? What does God do? God says, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. In other words, the most glorious thing about God is not his power, which is impressive, his majesty, his strength, all impressive. The most glorious thing about God is how good he is, how loving and kind and merciful and compassionate. That is God's glory. And God reveals to Israel as much glory as they can stand to experience. Remember he tells them, build a tabernacle and that'll be where my presence kind of lingers. But it's so intense that Moses can't enter it when God is fully there. In the book of 1 Samuel, the Israelites, there's a story about this. So they lose a battle to the Philistines, the Ark of the Covenant, which represents God's presence. It's, it's stolen, it's kidnapped. And the whole country is in, in disarray. The people are, 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 are sure God has left them. He's not present anymore. It's a bad day. Their head priest, Eli, he dies. Eli's son dies. His daughter-in-law, his son's wife, dies. But before she dies, she gives birth to, to a son. And the servant says to her, don't despair. You have given birth to a son. I'm trying to give her a little bit of hope while she's dying. And his daughter-in-law's last words are, his name shall be called Ichabod. She's making a pronouncement about what she thinks is reality. His name comes from kabod, the word for glory. But in Hebrew, when you attach an I to the beginning, it's like attaching an A to the beginning of a word in, in English. It turns it into its opposite, like moral, add an A to it, amoral. Ichabod, add an I to it. Instead of glory, it means inglorious, or there is no glory. Sometimes you might feel that way in this world. God has left the room. There is no glory. I had an experience in glory, with glory when I was living in Chicago, Nancy and I. And um, it was the 1990s. And glory had a, a name. Glory was manifested in the person of Michael Jordan. Okay? He was the glory of Chicago. And when he retired, all the glory left with him. The Chicago Bulls became the Chicago Ichabods. They haven't won anything since. Okay? <laughs> In naming her son Ichabod, this woman essentially says there is no Yahweh. Abraham was a dreamer. The covenant isn't good. The love of God is a myth. The resurrection of the righteous will not occur. The day of the Lord will never happen. History is not moving to a glorious consummation. Death is final. Life is cruel. Better my son learns this from the start through his name than believe this is, 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 is a myth. Than believe the myth. So she says, here's the story of our planet in my life. Ichabod, there is no glory. There is no God. Unfortunately, many people think that way today. But a prophet in Israel said this was not true, that, that God's glory was coming. Habakkuk 2 says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now notice it doesn't say the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. It already is. He says the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. We'll be able to experience and, and see and participate in God's glory. 
And how does that happen? It comes through Jesus Christ. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling amongst us. The glory of God is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. You know, before Jesus was crucified, He prayed a rather interesting prayer. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son so the Son may glorify You. And then he goes to the cross. What kind of glory is that? What kind of God glorifies his son by allowing him to die on a cross? But the cross demonstrates God's glory, his identification with us, his love for us, his goodness, his kindness, his compassion, his mercy, his incredible love. And before he died, Jesus prayed this prayer for you and me. Where he said, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, including us, that they may be all one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us, the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. So God's design and idea, his intention, is that we share the glory that, that he's given to Jesus Christ. That's incredible to think about. The next point is we are meant to share in God's glory. You know, when we lived in Chicago, going back there again, I went to a couple of Bulls games. I was able to get tickets and I wanted to see Michael Jordan play. I was in the building, but I wasn't close to the floor. But I noticed you see this a lot in these big games and the tunnel that leads from the court to the locker room. What happens? Fans gather around there and when the players run through, what do they do? They reach out. They try to high-five. They want to touch. They want to just get a, a taste, a taste of that glory. They want to experience And you saw that with Michael Jordan. People would just do anything to just get a high-five, just to, even if he would look at you and acknowledge you that you were there. They wanted to share his glory. We want to touch glory. We want to connect with it, even if we know we're not worthy of it. Like Stacey King. Stacey King was a reserve player for the Bulls. He was an All-American at Oklahoma, had a long career, but, you know, made a lot of money, but really didn't play a whole lot or wasn't an all-star. And with the Bulls, he rarely left the bench. But then one night during the playoffs, he did. He said it would be the greatest memory of his life. The night that he and Michael Jordan together scored a combined 70 points in an NFL or an NFL NBA playoff game. Jordan scored 69, but King shared in his glory. One more C.S. Lewis quote. He writes, We do not merely want to see beauty. We want something else which can hardly be put into words. To be united with the beauty we see. To pass into it. To receive it into ourselves. To bathe in it. To become part of it. He says, At present, we are on the wrong side of the door. And then he concludes, When we have become as perfect in our voluntary obedience, as the inanimate creation is in its lifeless obedience, we will put on nature's glory. Or rather, we will put on the greater glory of which nature is only the first sketch. In other words, when we're made like Christ, we're going to be more glorious than the universe around us. Isn't that incredible to think about? Because Jesus said the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. We're going to we're going to glow. We'll be incandescent. 
Last thing, real quickly. We were made to please God. We have a family dog, Tucker. Uh, we got him from the pound about 12 and a half years ago. He's been in church a couple of times, in fact, for object lessons. Uh, he's getting older, getting a little more stubborn, and he doesn't always want to obey like he used to. He's kind of like, ah, whatever, I'm old, I can do what I want. But he still gets things right once in a while. And when he does, we praise him. We'll say, Tucker, good boy, good dog. And he'll, what happens? His tail starts thwacking hard against the floor or, or the wall. It sounds like it's going to break, but he, he just gets so excited when we praise him. Just like a child receives praise from a, a father, a mother, a coach, or grandparents, they just beam with joy and excitement because we are made to please. And ultimately, we are made to please God. We are made to hear God say, well done. Well done. Whether Whatever we do in our lives, whether it's to eat or to drink, to sleep, to work, to play, we're designed to, to give God the glory, to please Him in all that we say and do, and everything flows out of that. That is our chief and, and main end. So whether we're in the office or on the court or the classroom, whether we're their friend in a coffee shop, at home, outdoors, we're created to give God the glory, to point others to Him. For Him, all the glory belongs. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for your son, Jesus. We thank you for the love that he has for us. And uh, Lord, we we just want to ascribe to you the glory that's due you. Uh, We know that we just have a a limited understanding of, of, of how incredible you are. But we can look at Jesus and we can see the full revelation of who you are. Uh, We look at creation and we see your glory there. We look at each other and we see your glory even in us, uh, in in the things that are beautiful and good and noble. Lord, we confess to you that so often we tend to want to accumulate glory for ourselves. Lord, help us to be people who reflect your glory, to point others to you, the source of everything that is good about us. And so, Lord, we, we want to magnify you and glorify you as individuals and as a church, all for your glory, Lord, whatever we do. In Jesus' name, amen.